Welcome to the Journal of the Southwest Radio Hour, produced by the University of Arizona Southwest Center. I'm Jeff Bannister. My interview today is with Lake and Jordahl, Borderlands campaigner for the Tucson-based Center for Biological Diversity. Mr. Jordahl's job is to bring attention to the threats of militarization, including wall construction, to people and places across the U.S.-Mexico borderlands region. He has worked for several years to protect wildlife, ecosystems, and communities in the U.S. West, including time working for the National Park Service in Big Bend National Park and Oregon Pipe National Monument. He was also a legislative fellow in the U.S. House of Representatives and for two Arizona congressional representatives. Jordahl now spends much of his time on the border filming and otherwise documenting the accelerated destruction of what is, for so many of us who live in this region, nothing less than hallowed ground. So Lake and Jordahl, uh, thanks so much for joining us on uh, Journal of the Southwest Radio Hour. My pleasure. I wish I could be there in person with you, Jeff. Yeah, it's, well, it's great to have you here, in quotes. <laughs> um, I guess we do have to say that we're recording this um, podcast during the time of uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic, and so we're both doing this remotely. You're the uh, Borderlands campaigner for the Center for Biological Diversity, which mm-hmm. I would love to ask you more about later on in this interview more specifically. But I kind of want to know how you got into this kind of work. What's the what's the trajectory that led you into working for the Center for Biological Diversity and working on borderlands issues? Yeah, it's um, it's been a wild and, and windy road, um, but I'm really happy to be here uh, where I'm at in Tucson working with the center today. You know, I did my undergrad um, at U of A in Tucson, um, and that kind of opened my eyes up to the borderlands as a region. And actually taking your Geography 408 class uh, kind of grounded me in that context um, and really uh, just got me to start interrogating uh, this place, this landscape, um, and really appreciating uh, the binational nature um, of these incredible lands. Um, I went on from there to work uh, actually about a year in D.C. doing conservation policy focused on the borderlands with uh, Congressman Grijalva. Um, and then I got a job with the National Park Service, um, working on wilderness stewardship and preservation. Um, and my goal there was always to return to the borderlands. I always wanted to work at Big Bend and at Oregon Pipe and specifically look at how our national security policy was impacting wilderness lands um, and wildlife on the border. Um, I worked at six different national parks and monuments and ultimately was able to work seasons both at Big Bend in Texas and at Oregon Pipe um, here in Arizona, um, and just was blown away by the amount of damage, the amount of devastation uh, we were seeing from border security activity, from border patrol vehicles driving in wilderness. I was working at Oregon Pipe when Trump was inaugurated. So there was this deep, deep feeling of uncertainty um, about what would happen there, about how policies would change there. And that was when I really realized um, I was going to have to leave the Park Service if I really wanted to speak on behalf of, of these incredible landscapes. Um, and that's when I left and, and joined the center. The thought of working for the Park Service uh, under the Trump administration, you know, weathering that storm for four years um, was just something I, I didn't want to do. Um, so I'm really happy to be now at an organization where we can speak honestly about the threats facing our land and, and advocate for the protection of these places that are just being destroyed right now by uh, the construction of Trump's border wall. Are you still in contact with people at um, an or- at Oregon Pipe, another park? What are they saying? What are they thinking? Yeah, so I, you know, I have a lot of friends that work the, for the Park Service still um, throughout the Intermountain region. Um, I have a lot of friends who actually left the agency after the election, um, who wanted to, you know, do work that meaningfully addressed 
threat of climate change, of border militarization. Um, so I have nothing but respect for my colleagues who, who stayed with the agency. Um, I think the last four years have been the hardest four years of a lot of their careers. And yeah, of course, we're still in communication. Yeah, so much empathy for, for the people who do have careers working in conservation for the federal land management agencies that have just seen their priorities completely turned inside out in this last year. Are there people in, in uh, say, Oregon Pipe and Big Bend, I mean, within these agencies who dare to speak out against it, or is it is the discipline pretty heavy? There is a very real threat um, of significant repercussions for any agency folks who do speak out um, against specifically the border wall project. You know, this wall, uh, this project is President Trump's number one priority. Uh, from day one, this has been his focus, his signature campaign promise. Um, so anybody at the agency um, speaking out or casting doubt um, upon a project like this or talking about all of the incredible uh, wildlife and landscapes and resources that will be destroyed from the project, they are jeopardizing their careers and their positions. Um, so I think, you know, we have to be really careful. Um, and, and people are very much self-censoring. You know, I, I stayed on with the Park Service for a few months after he was elected and I was actually asked to take references to climate change out of some some of the reports I was writing. And there was just this sense of almost preemptive self-censorship. People didn't want to be working on controversial issues because they didn't want their funding to be slashed. Um, so I'm really excited for a day when uh, federal land managers and scientists don't have to censor themselves, don't have to live in fear of repercussions. Um, but we are far from that day right now. So, uh, so clearly there's a lot of self-censoring going on in these agencies because people are forced to protect themselves and their jobs and, Absolutely. and the place, probably in a way the places that they are trying to protect as well, I could imagine. Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there are people at Oregon Pipe who have dedicated their entire careers to protecting uh, the unique desert landscape there, to protecting the cultural resources, um, endangered species like the Sonoida mud turtle and Akito Bakito pupfish. Um, there are people who have spent decades uh, working in that landscape, trying to preserve it. Um, and their hearts are cracking wide open right now, watching all of the devastation. Yeah, no kidding. Like so many, like so many of us who live in this region and, and outside of it, of course, too. Mm -hmm. So you, um, in your course of studies, were you a geography major? I can't remember. <laughs> were you environmental studies? You know, I did um, the international studies program. So I was able to focus okay. on uh, conservation, uh, habitat management in Latin America. So you had a by working for these different parts, then you, I mean, after you graduated, you had, seems like you had um, a chance to kind of get an overview of the the state of the parks and mm -hmm. also the, the, you know, the nature of the threats, right? Um, coming from both the federal government and other, mm -hmm. from other areas, from U.S. politics, probably more broadly. Mm -hmm. um, and so can you say, so, do, you know, based on what you had learned in school and the things that you were thinking about, what was the contrast, if any, between what you had learned and actually what you saw once you were kind of able to get on the ground and work in these places like Big Bend, for instance, or Oregon Pipe? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no substitute for, for seeing the place for yourself. You know, we learned so much in school about how interconnected these regions are, these ecosystems, these communities, these economies. But when you actually go take a swim in the Rio Grande River in Santa Elena Canyon in Big Bend, and your body's floating across this invisible line that is the border, which is defined by the deepest channel of the river. Um, you know, there's no substitute for, for the real thing. And I think, 
you know, nothing I learned in school could have prepared me or anyone else probably for the Trump administration. Um, Mm -hmm. I never thought we would live in an era where, you know, the majority of, of, of the science and a lot of the work that we were doing to address climate change, which I consider the biggest existential threat to human and animal life, that's all being censored now. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, <laughs> it was, it was really interesting to kind of start, start my career under Obama, um, with, with the federal government have this immediate switch of priorities of tone, um, to, to that of the Trump Pence administration. And when you started at the park service, did you, what were your, um, what was your kind of state of mind in terms of your looking at, you know, kind of imagining the arc of your career, if, if you were doing that at the time? Hmm. You know, I, I kind of saw two possible paths. Um, one was actually being, uh, you know, having a career uh, with the government, with the Park Service, working on wilderness stewardship policy, which I'm still super passionate about. The other possible arc, which I have ended up taking, um, was kind of using this knowledge and this information that I had learned about how these agencies function, how these agencies craft environmental policy, um, and working for an environmental organization that is going to actively push the policy in the direction that it needs to go to protect wilderness and protect wildlife. And as soon as Trump came into office, I knew that was that was the option that I would end up following. Yeah, you got a big push. <laughs> <laughs> Fair to say. A tidal wave push, yeah. <laughs> when did you start working for the Center for Biological Diversity? It's been a, two or three years? Um, yeah, I started with the center on my 26th birthday, September 2017. So coming up on three years. Wow, and so you've been with the organization at a, obviously at a crucial moment for what it's doing and focusing on, and you know, an incredible time mm-hmm. in the world. Tell me a little bit about how you're, uh, you as an organization are approaching the, you know, the destruction of these environments in preparation for the construction of or in the construction of the border wall. What's your what's your approach? What can you what can be done? Yeah, so um, the center. I think first and foremost, uh, we litigate, we file many, many lawsuits um, to make sure that the government is following its own laws to protect endangered species, um, to protect wilderness lands. Um, so we've done a lot of litigation. We filed more than half a dozen lawsuits uh, against Trump's border wall, against different aspects of, of wall construction. Um, but we do a lot more than that. Um, we also have a, a large creative media campaign um, and that's really what my job is focused on, is, is speaking out on behalf of, of these lands, um, of the wildlife, and just helping convey to people what's at stake. You know, I think if people across the country were able to actually come down to the borderlands to see the borderlands in Oregon Pipe or Big Bend um, or the San Bernardino Wildlife Refuge for themselves, um, there is no way that we would still be talking about building a border wall. Um, so it's been my mission to help convey to the world what's at stake, to help make people realize that the borderlands are this lush, biologically diverse place full of life, a place worthy of protection, um, not one that deserves to be destroyed. What do you hope? Yeah, what, what do you hope that people would see if they were if they were able to see these places? What do you think would change their minds about them? Well, I think you know the Trump administration has so successfully cast this region um, as this lifeless desolate place. Um, when I, and I should note, you know, this has been an effort from, from the Republican Party and from people who are in favor of, of, of authoritarian border security measure, um, way predating the Trump administration. Um, but I think the discussion about what 
the borderlands really are, those narratives are never told by people who are from the borderlands. Those narratives are never centered, at least the national narratives, on who we are, what our needs are, um, what the history of these places are. You know, you, you Google U.S.-Mexico border image search, you're going to see hundreds of pictures of border walls, of border patrol agents, of concertina razor wire strung up through communities. You know, it's my dream that someday you'll, you'll make that Google search um, and it's going to be of these beautiful, vibrant communities. It's going to be of these incredible landscapes um, of children playing. Um, I think so much of what we need to do is, is uh, reclaim the narrative of the borderlands, uh, reclaim the story and make sure that people from the border region are the ones that are telling it, um, not politicians who are able to win elections based on fear-mongering about this region. Yeah, there's definitely a... <laughs> No doubt about it that the that the border itself, the border, is um, you know serves a lot of political purposes, <laughs> and and by virtue of that, that that whole concept just gets completely abstracted from from any sense or any tethering in place. Yeah, it's this rhetorical sphere. It's I mean, it's hyperbole. It's 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 not a real place when you hear it talked about in D.C. Right. Do you have so? Are you connected then? Um, with you must be with people in, in Washington DC. Are you are you traveling back and forth and talking to people there, or what's your? Mm-hmm. Tell me about what your kind of average day is like. <laughs> well, job. there's no normal, and especially especially now with the the pandemic. But um, yeah, we've done numerous trips to Washington DC. Um, the most recent one, we uh, actually brought people from border communities, specifically um, documented folks. Um, so people who are protected by the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival Program, um, who are uh, in jeopardy of, of losing that protection and being deported by the Trump administration. We brought lots of folks from border communities into congressional offices um, and let them tell their stories to lawmakers. Um, let them talk about what it's like to live in a militarized community, what it's like to live in a community occupied by Border Patrol. Um, we, you know, showed pictures of these incredible places and talked about the impacts of wall construction. Our mission on those trips is to make the border real, make it a real place, um, make people realize that when they strike a deal approving border wall funding or funding for Border Patrol agents, um, their decisions have very real consequences that impact the lives of thousands of people. So yeah, we continue to work on, on policy initiatives. Um, and right now we're working on a draft of policy that will effectively stop all wall construction, uh, select areas to tear down miles of Trump's wall, where it's uh, specifically damaging in wilderness areas and wildlife refuges, um, and set aside a, a massive mitigation fund that will effectively restore so much of what's been destroyed by the Trump administration. And who are your, so you said we took people to the border um, who are your allies in all of this, and uh, and who are you speaking to? Yes, I mean we've we've basically met with as many offices um, as will open their doors to us. Um, we've met with with senators, with representatives. Um, we specifically, you know, work closely with all of the border members of Congress, all of whom are opposed to the border wall across party lines in many ways or yeah yeah so there's it's, it's predominantly democrats on the border there's there's one republican that actually has the biggest chunk of a border district it's 800 miles in south texas um his name's wow. will hurd and he's come out explicitly against the border wall um there's there's video of him mountain biking along the border in his district um and he's an ex-cia operative who um just obviously sees that there's no purpose there's no security purpose in, in building wall 
else. So you you're you're trying obviously you're trying to to uh, get the message out that this place is being deeply impacted and and that a lot of these decisions that are being made are not taking into consideration you know the dynamics of and processes of place in place. And so do you are you finding any traction out there from people who um, you know might otherwise be kind of predisposed to disagree with that or you know maybe tell me you could maybe you can talk about the you know, how your message is working out there in the world. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, you know, depending on who we're talking to, uh, lots of members and representatives are, are instantly on board and they get it. Um, then there's folks who are kind of in the middle of the road. And to them, I mean, what I try to highlight um, specifically to more conservative or, or, or centrist folks is that those of us who live in the borderlands, who live on the border, we do not have the same rights and protections as everyone else in this country. In order to build the wall, the Trump administration has waived um, more than 60 different laws. Um, this is so they can rush construction. These are laws like the Safe Drinking Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act, Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. People who live along the border are not protected by the same laws that protect every other person living in this country. Um, and I think you know you don't you don't have to be radical or, or a leftist or even against border militarization to realize there's something deeply troubling and unfair about that. These laws were passed mm -hmm. to, to apply to everyone. Um, and those of us on the border are not, not protected by them. So we have a large effort to repeal this provision that allows the Trump administration and any administration to waive laws to rush border wall construction. Um, and that's one of the first things we're going to try and do as soon as Trump is out of office. It, it is something that I've always thought kind of defies you know, belief in a way, but maybe not. But, the, you know, since the Bush, Bush administration and, and definitely to some degree during the Obama administration and now, of course, just on steroids, the, the waiving of all these different um, federal laws to, to, to construct this. I mean, how it's amazing to me how durable that push is, mm -hmm. um, you know, even though people have been fighting it like crazy in the courts. Yeah. Well, and what do you think explains that? I mean, this question, this gets to the central, the central question I've, I've always had in this work. Um, the same question I was asking when I worked with the Park Service. Um, it's just, why are we okay with sacrificing our civil liberties and environmental protections when it comes to the border and nowhere else? Why is it okay to cast aside these laws here and nowhere else in the country? And, and you know, I think some, you need some historical understanding of how this provision was passed. The Real ID Act was, was passed in 2005. It was, this provision of it specifically was widely considered to be kind of an anti-terror law. It wasn't that long after the Patriot Act. So I think we were, we were willing to give away some of our civil liberties, some of our environmental protections, because the Bush administration was claiming this was absolutely necessary for national security, which now, of course, we know the border wall plays very little role in national security. Um, it's more of an election prop than um, any sort of security infrastructure. But yeah, I think I think you know it's 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 far past time to re-examine why we are okay with that as a concession. Mm -hmm. Right, and the, and and I think in many ways the the uh, the concept more broadly that we can create a kind of a militarized zone that that somehow is dissuading people from coming into the United States because of how difficult it is to get in. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I think that's, it's pretty obvious that that has not been super effective. No. And then again, it's not, you know what I mean? It's not obvious to everyone. <laughs> there are so many, so many 
contests over the over the meaning of what that that whole process is. And so mm-hmm. I just I just it's kind of amazing to me to watch as all of these pushes to you know to kind of contest all of this in the courts. They seem to just keep continuing on no matter what through that process. You know, it, it is it is astonishing to me in some ways. I mean, I know of course that politics generally in this country have shifted very far to the right you know, in a way that, that makes some of the things that we thought were so horrible 15 years ago look sort of quaint at this point. <laughs> but, you know, but, I, but I've also sort of watched, the, watched with amazement as challenge after challenge like this that makes it to some degree into the court system yeah. gets slapped down. That, that just, that, that kind of beggars belief in a lot of ways that, that none of this has, for the most part, been able to even, to me at least from what I can see, mm-hmm. slow down at all the government's efforts. What do you think about that? You know, I think it's a, it's a fair assessment. Um, all of our litigation uh, related to the border wall, you know, we haven't been able to successfully stop any construction or get an injunction. The injunctions that we have gotten have been quickly overturned. Mm-hmm. We're currently asking the Supreme Court to hear our case challenging this waiver authority um, because it's quite clear from the way the law was written that it was never intended to exist in perpetuity. Uh-huh. If they do decide that this waiver is allowed to exist in perpetuity, that precedent would, would just be a horrifying precedent to set for this entire region. You're basically saying, okay, border communities don't ever deserve the same protections as everyone else. So yeah, I think you're right. Um, you know, Because of this waiver authority, all of the tools in our toolkit that we would normally use to stop a project like this are unavailable to us. We can't sue over the Endangered Species Act. We can't sue over the Clean Water Act. I mean, Border Patrol has been given a a blank check to destroy as much of the borderlands as they want with no legal repercussions because of this waiver. None of this wall construction that's happening now could be happening if the waiver wasn't in place. That's really interesting. So you're, in a way, you kind of lose... But especially around the Endangered Species Act, you you lose a primary tool in the toolkit of organizations like the Center for Biodiversity, you know, that are pushing for enforcement of proper enforcement of that of that national uh, legislation. Mm-hmm. So, what is your? I know you kind of alluded to this earlier, but what is then your legal tack? And I mean, I don't want to get us bogged down too much. I know this is not your exactly mm-hmm. your area, but but I think it it seems like listeners would be keen to kind of know like. What then do you pick up as a tool in the in the place of that? Certainly, yeah. Well, I mean, first off, we're challenging the very constitutionality of that waiver authority, which we believe is wildly unconstitutional. Other than that, we're challenging different aspects of construction that that aren't subject to um, the legal waiver. Um, we're continuing to challenge the Department of Homeland Security over their total lack of environmental compliance um, in their other activities. Um, they haven't done uh, an environmental assessment of their overall actions for 20 years. Um, it's far past time for them to uh, actually assess the impacts of their enforcement actions across the board. Um, there are 20,000 Border Patrol agents that are operating in, in many cases, in wilderness lands and sensitive uh, environmental habitats. They need to actually assess the impacts of their actions. So we do have litigation um, over that. But, you know, as I mentioned before, so much of our role now is, is this role of, of, of bearing witness to the destruction, is this role of storytelling. You know, I see so much value in this work, even though it can feel really hopeless right now. Um, the more that we get these stories out there, the more that we change the national narrative about the borderlands, um, the easier it will be to stop all wall construction as soon as Trump's out of office. 
the easier it will be to justify tearing down miles of wall that were built in, in wilderness areas and wildlife refuges. Um, so we're definitely we're in it for the long game. And while we're still fighting in the courts, we're also um, doing this big public awareness campaign that I think is, is so important right now.